It's time for us to begin. If you wouldn't mind, turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 3. First Kings three. I don't have backup questions. That's not really the right word. Uh, review questions today, but I do have something I did want to go over. I had mentioned last class I didn't take time to retrace Abiathar. Remember with Abiathar when Solomon is telling him. I'm going to remove you from being a priest. You have to go back to your home. Uh, And it was a fulfillment of the pronouncement of judgment on Eli's house. And I kind of just wonder, well, how are he and Eli related? So I took a little bit of time. It didn't take very long to retrace how Biathar and and him are related. Obviously, he's some sort of great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather. But um, the scripture's not silent on it, so... He was removed to fulfill a prophecy. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 27 through 37 is where that takes place. We went over that in the last class, and I'm sure everyone remembers that. So the, the line goes from Eli. Remember, Eli was removed because of what his sons had done, and his uh, son Phineas and Eleazar, I believe it were, yeah, Phineas and Eleazar, I believe, died in the war with the Philistines. Then it mentions Phineas, of course, had two sons. Um, We're we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 3 to walk ourselves through that. You can put your marker where I told you to turn originally. 1 Samuel 14 and verse 3. And there it says, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. So Ahitub is the brother of Ichabod. And remember, Ichabod's the one that was named. The glory departed because the the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I believe it was. Uh, So Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. So that gives us some of it. And then we'll turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 22. And if you remember what's going on as we move along in in the Old Testament text here, this is when David is running from from Saul. Saul has kind of lost his his mind somewhat. But there in verse 9 it says, Then answered Doeg the Edomite. So David has just left Jerusalem. He's went to the priests at Nob and had gotten Goliath's sword and some bread to eat, all all of that. So then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, Lord. So it gets us all the way down to Ahimelech. Of course, Ahimelech, remember Doeg the Edomite is going to kill all these 85 priests that are at Nob. Among them would be Ahimelech. So Ahimelech is the father of Abiathar. We look at verse 20 in that same chapter. Through the end of the chapter, it says, Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons 
of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. So that's the, the lineage from all the way from Eli down to Abiathar and how when Abiathar is removed it's going to be the final judgment against Eli's house for the way he's raised his children in the past. Any questions or points? All right, moving to the new text here in chapter 3. So go ahead and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. This, this, these sections can, be, can get so confusing because we're flipping back and forth the Kings and then the Chronicles and trying to keep it straight. There's a little more information in one sometimes and sometimes there's a little more information in the other. We'll just try to, try to keep up with it as we go through there. So Solomon in chapter 2 had kind of set up his throne. He set up everything and he's, he's ready to, to, uh, to take the throne. He's gotten rid of those that were really not in his best interest to keep around and uh, dealt with Adonijah, dealt with all these different ones. So chapter 3, it says, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. So this almost is it's just a weird interjection uh, we're talking about one wife. Now, how many wives did Solomon end up with? Yeah, a whole, whole bunch. I always get those inverted, maybe. <laughs> it's, he, he ends up with a thousand uh, ladies. It's either concubine or wife. I think you're right, 300 wives, 700 concubines. Uh, so we're told about one here. Um, still rolling around with that in my brain about why, why it centers in on the one daughter of Pharaoh. Maybe she's the first that there's going to be, um, th- that she is going to be, what would you call it? A, um, well, I think I've got it here. Can't think of things today. An alliance with the, the powers that be in Egypt, who are powerful nearby. Um, so Solomon is taking his place here. He's making an alliance with Egypt through this, this wife, and we know what's going to happen because of these wives that are foreign. Yeah, his, his heart is going to go towards, I guess you would say, what they want as far as worship goes. And it's, it's a battle with Solomon his whole life. We're going to kind of explore that in these next few classes, whether it's me or, or Brent teaching. Um, maybe a lot, of, uh, a lot of banter with people about what condition did Saul die in? Saul, so we know Saul, but Solomon, what condition did he die in? Was he saved? Was he lost? You know, at the end of his life, what happens? He's led away, right? But then it does appear like what he wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is the tale of a man who has been down that road and said, this is utter foolishness, I'm going to come back to God, because there's nothing else that matters. And for him to do that and then go back into to following Satan in any way would be kind of strange. That's kind of where I stand on it. I know a lot of other people say, well, he probably died in, in that state of being fallen away. Um, I just, I, I'm just not really sure. Uh, but anyway, we'll go on with that. His, his fate is sealed. We know that much. So... So he marries Pharaoh's daughter, sets up an alliance with Egypt, not starting off super strong here, right? They weren't supposed to do this, but uh, nevertheless, we talk about his worship practices as well. The, the scriptures are not real 
fond of what he does, at least in part at first. It says some things about him compared with David, verse 2. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now we're going we're gonna to fall in here and start looking at this one particular high place, the great high place. But the fact that Solomon, it says he worshipped at the high places, that's a plural. So he's going around worshipping at multiple high places. The idea of kind of going on an elevated area to get you closer to God. Um, Get the idea he wasn't supposed to do that. Now the worship at the great high place was a horse of another color. What What was the great high place that he went to worship and offered all the sacrifices on? Somebody said Gibeon. Gibeon's one of those places that kind of We'll go for a while and then it'll come up again. We'll go for a while and it'll come up again, right? The, the, uh, in the war with, between David and Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the men killed each other at the pool of Gibeon. And then there was another person a few weeks ago, we talked about it, that um, I think it was Amasa, the, king, the, the, uh, the general of the army of Absalom who joined David's army. David put him in command of his own army. He's killed at the rock of Something, can't remember the name of it. Some of you might want to look it up, but nevertheless, he kills him at, the, at a rock there in Gibeon. So Gibeon's kind of a, one of those places. It, it, it appears at several other times. So he worships at multiple high places, but then God appears to him at one of them, and it's this great high place of Gibeon. So let's, let's look here at the verses that follow that. Verse, five, verse 4, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. So Solomon puts out before God, this is my concern. I don't have a lot of experience. I'm replacing the greatest king we've ever had, and yet I don't know really what I'm doing. So I'm going to need some help here. So let's look at this. The most important high place, Gibeon. Why was Gibeon the most important high place? Anybody want to tackle that one? All right. Because the tabernacle had been set up there. We're going to look at First Chronicles. Remember I said, it gets kind of confusing because you've got to go between Kings and Chronicles. So let's turn to First Chronicles chapter 16. And there's a couple of verses there that will reiterate the tabernacle having been set up there. Verse 39 and 40. <clears throat> and Zadok, the priest, and his brethren, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening and to do according to all that was written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. So that just lets us know 
<coughs> excuse me, this is where the tabernacle had been set up. What other furniture from the tabernacle had been, was not there? Yeah, David, remember, had moved the ark to Jerusalem. He had a little trouble moving it there. One guy died because of it. It's not a small thing. Uh, but then he, he goes back and he studies the law, figures out we did it. A whole thing was wrong, so we're going to do this a different way. And he brought it in with, uh, on, the, on the priest's shoulders like it's supposed to be and dancing before the Lord, offering sacrifices. You might say he went overboard a little bit with it. They didn't move it that way when they were traveling, but uh, he was making sure that it was done the, done the right way. But this tabernacle, they, let, they moved to Gibeon, the biggest high place around, and set it up there. So that's why it was the great high place. That's why it wasn't wrong for Solomon to offer sacrifices in Gibeon rather than in Jerusalem because the, the high place was one that was definitely for God that was there. Now God asks him, we've already read it, ask what you wish me to give you. Ask what you wish me to give you. And Solomon goes into what his, his, his desire is. I'm just like a little child. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, how to judge this great people of yours after the great king that we've had. Let's, uh, let's go back over to, to First Chronicles, or First Kings, sorry, chapter 3, back to where we were. We've gotten up to about verse 9. So he's given this speech to God when he asks him what he wants. And <clears throat> it says, therefore, verse 9, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Well, that's a pretty good thing to ask for. We don't know how old Solomon was. We do know, if we're, if we're tracing it back, he would have been pretty young. David uh, started, he, he reigned for 40 years. We know for a fact that Solomon was born to Bathsheba, whom he married after he was in Jerusalem. So he's under 33 years old, right, at this particular time. Uh, which is pretty young for a king. It's younger than any of our presidents have been, as far as I'm aware of. Um, but it's likely he was probably even younger than that. It looks like he might have been in his late 20s, um, early 30s, if, if that. So any thoughts so far? All right, moving, moving on. So he asked him for something really good. And verse 10 says, The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked a long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment or justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any be like you, like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So, remember where I am, verse 13, as we go forward. And, and God knows, really, the human heart. I think if any, if any of us, God offered, hey, ask me whatever you want. We probably should ask what Solomon asked. Well, give me a wise and discerning heart to, to be able to help people, maybe to be able to, 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 to rule over my family and lead them in the right way and all that kind of stuff, but we probably wouldn't, right? We probably, money, uh, give me some power, fame, make life smooth and easy for me. There's all kinds of things we could wish for, but 
We're not usually wise enough creatures to ask for the really good things that God can give. So Solomon, he has that, that going for him. He had enough wisdom to ask for wisdom to rule the people, which is going to make life better, not just for him, but it's going to make life better for everybody in the kingdom, at least for a time, until he falls away from following God closely. So, all right, moving on, verse 13. Uh, and I also have given you what you have not asked, riches and honor. So if there shall be not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he, God granted him his request, but he also granted him wealth and honor and all of these things that you would think someone would ask for as well. And nobody did it like Solomon. Nobody got it like Solomon. It's so amazing. And also, long life was promised to him. God, when, when, God, when he asked for what he asked for, he says, you could have asked for long life. It's one of the things that God brought up to him. But here in verse 14, he says, So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he, he's offered him that as well. And what's it related to, getting long days? Anybody? Keep, yeah, keeping my statutes, keep my commandments. And the problem with it is that Solomon kind of put himself, he's already started off our text this morning, chapter 3 and verse 1. He started himself down this path where that keeping that is going to be more difficult, right? Marry a foreign, uh, foreign wife, the daughter of a foreign king. That is really, when you think about Egypt, Egypt in the Old Testament represents, for the first three quarters of the Old Testament, they represent worldliness. And so he's marrying into worldliness. And she's not going to give that worldliness up, that, that earthly worship to earthly things that are created by men. She's just going to keep on into it, as is the rest of his, a lot of the rest of his wives anyway. They're also going to keep doing that. Yes, sir? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the kind of what I was going for. Good thing to point out. Yeah, it appears like he's giving him this, and it's going to be yours no matter what your whole life. But that life may not be very long if you don't keep my commandments in some way. So, um, and it becomes a difficult thing. Yes. Right. Right. And they, that, that love and that affection for them caused 
Right. Yeah, your love for, for God has to be supreme overall, and then everything else will fall in line. But when you start replacing, which it appears what happened with Solomon, he started replacing his love for God with the love for another human being. And we're, we're off, to the, off to the races, so to speak, going in a bad direction when that becomes the thing. You'll, become, you'll be a much, many people said, you become a much better husband if you love God the most and then love your wife. You become a much better father if you love your God and then you love your children. Um, it just makes you better. You start loving someone, you want to give them what they want out of their selfish desires and things like that. Good point. Definitely appreciate it. Yeah, he's, he, he appears to be, to have died possibly younger than David did. David didn't have a very long life at 70, um, but long enough, uh, it appears. He was ready to go. So, All right, so now we've told all this stuff about Solomon. Brings us up to verse 15. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. So starting in verse 16, we're going to see that wisdom that he gets sort of uh, put to the test. And it's a a difficult thing. I don't know how common this kind of thing was back then. but um, Offering it at the altar at Gibeon. Yeah, he offered it. Yes, that's what it says here in verse 15 that he, let's see, verse, let me find it again. Verse 15, it says, he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So he offered in both places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at any rate. Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. The Lord did appear to him at Gibeon. Then it, you might say, well, why would you go back to Jerusalem and offer up more there at the ark? Uh, well, that was the, that was the dwelling place of God in, on the mercy seat. And David had pitched this tent just for that. So it's kind of like, I got the idea. Well, he's just kind of hitting all his bases here. <laughs> and he had already offered on all these high places, which it appears that God's not really really pleased with the other high places. It doesn't appear like Solomon's going there and offering to foreign gods, nor was other people. They just weren't coming for this corporate worship the way they should be. So, at any rate, moving on, these two women come before Solomon, and what's the plight that they bring before him? Yeah, we're not told a whole lot about the background. Why are they, why are they living together? Are they married to the same guy? Or what is it? Uh, any of that. It's just, well, they've got two women and two babies, and one of the babies is dead, and both of the women are saying, the live child is mine. Well, and the dead child is the other one's, right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Verse um, 16, now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. I stand corrected. That word just kind of jumped out at me. These were not women that were probably married to someone. It says they were both harlots, but they, in their in their in their profession, especially a long time ago, you would be this would be something that would happen. You would get children from from that activity, obviously. 
two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side. While your maidservant slept, and laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning uh, to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son, whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. We've got a quandary here. It's about, at this point, it's about he, she said, she said. And it's just, you know, what are you going to do? Nobody really knows whose child is whose. When, when you're talking about little babies, I mean, if you're around them a lot, you might know whose is whose. But when you just visit someone every now and then, you don't know which baby belongs to who. But the mom knows, right? These mothers are going to know. So somebody's lying, and that's pretty obvious. So... Solomon comes up with a test. What test does he come up with? It's, yes, it's, it's famous, right? I mean, just about everybody you ever talk to knows this. Solomon says, take the living child and cut him in half. You get the idea, a soldier with one leg and a soldier with the other leg and a guy with a sword back here ready to just cut him right down the middle and said, give half to each. Well, what's the obvious problem there? Well, he's going to get half of this child, but uh, both halves are going to be dead this time. What's he hoping to, that will happen? Exactly. So the, the child's mother is the one that sought the real welfare of the child. Which was not to die, you know, even though it's conditions and living, mother's a harlot and all this kind of stuff, and all this is maybe we would say, well, that's not the best environment to raise a child in. Maybe child services should come in and take them away, because they didn't have that back then. But to be living is better still, right? So the, child, the, the real mother seeks the, real, the welfare of the child. What's weird about this whole exchange? is the mother of the son who is dead, right? I can't, I can't imagine if I'm in her spot saying what she said. Anybody, what did she say about this whole situation? No, no, let him be divided. It's like that there had to be some emotional, mental anguish that was taking her outside of what is normal, which... We all know can happen with people that are emotionally distraught. I've seen it, worked in psych for about six years, and uh, people deal differently with horrific things that happen to them, and the death of a child is certainly a terrible thing to have to, to live through. And she, she's to be pitied for this, but this goes beyond certain things, and she certainly shouldn't be listened to as far as that, uh, as far as that goes. So Solomon granted the, the, the real mother that sought the welfare of the child custody after that test. 
And it tells us at the end, well, let's read the rest of it since we started out. And um, verse 23, and the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And then it says, and all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So it starts, this is his first great test. He passes it with flying colors of being, uh, as having wisdom of God to be able to rule the people in this, really this, what would appear an impossible scenario. He, he handles it with great grace and wisdom and finds out the true mother of the child and all Israel comes to fear him. Any thoughts on this, this whole exchange? All right. That moves us into chapter 4, and I first started reading chapter 4, and I thought, man, this, is a, this one's going to be a snoozer, just a list of people that do this and that and the other in his kingdom, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, there's always something to see. Sometimes it just jumps right off the, off the page at you. It talks about Solomon's officials. So verse, verse 1, so King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihareph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar were priests, uh, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest and king's friend, Ahishar over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. Um, almost caught up with them there. Two, two pages worth of those on the screen. Um, I'm not going to be able to go back real quick, but nevertheless. Um, is there anybody there that we recognize? We can talk a little bit about Zadok and Abiathar. We know it's already been dealt with, right, back in chapter 2. Abiathar is no longer the priest. He sent him back to his home and said, you know, you deserve death, but since you, you, you hung with my father David through all the difficult times, we've already seen one, when he's running from Saul and he brings word, 85 priests are, that wear the linen ephod have been murdered in Nob. Um, he says, well, just stay with me and we'll make it through this. And then he became the high priest and goes with David as he's running from Absalom as well. But he's been removed, so he's only a priest at the very beginning of Solomon's um, reign. So, but it does mention him here because he was one of them. I don't recognize any of these other people uh, as far as that goes. Um, priest, also another priest, Azariah, son of Zadok. So Zadok's son continues on. Abiathar's son is not mentioned. Uh, Benaiah, we remember him. He becomes, remember he killed Joab because Joab backed um, Adonijah when he wanted, when he was trying to usurp the throne. Uh, Benaiah appears to be 
possibly a foreigner, but he is over the army. Uh, Jehoshaphat, that's a familiar name, but familiar because there's a later king called Jehoshaphat. Um, so I don't recognize most of these people. Anybody want to bring something up about these, these guys that are his officials over different places in the kingdom? All right, moving on. Oh, I get caught up with it there. And the 12 district governors. This is a little, maybe a little more interesting, I guess. Um, verse 7 says, And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Machaz. Shalbim, Beth Shemesh, and Elon Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed in Araboth, to him belonged Sukho in all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab in all the regions of Dor, he had Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, as a wife, Bana, the son of Ahilud in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth Shan which is beside Zaratan below Jezreel from Bethshan to Abel-Meholah as far as the other side of Jachneam. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead, to him belong the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh in Gilead. To him also belong the region of Argob in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Iddo in Mahanaim. Ahimeaz in Naphtali, he also took Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, as a wife. Baana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Aloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, Parua, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. And Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead. In the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. Um, so, a couple things to notice from that. Beana, who's he related to? Somebody you might remember, right? Anybody? He's the son of Hushai the Archite, who was the one who went to Absalom and countered the advice of Ahithophel. So David's finding a way to keep him involved in things through his son. How about, I've got two highlighting yellow, Ahimeaz and going back, uh, Ben Abinadab. What do they have in common? They're both in, Sol in Solomon's family. They have married Solomon's daughters. Uh, so I take it to be that these guys maybe come a little bit later as far as being over these, these places to make Solomon old enough to have daughters to marry. So uh, not looked really hard at the, at the timeline there. Even some of these, some of these young uh, ladies would get married fairly early in, in life, you know, between um, 13, 15, somewhere in there. Uh, so it wouldn't throw the timeline off very much. So any thoughts on all of these different guys? Maybe more there. I mean, you can go back. I didn't take the time to pull up a map and say, well, this is where this one was. This one was over here and all that kind of stuff. Just, you run out of time. So, 
Uh, but at any rate, you could do that. A lot of these places, it says that they are, they are district governors over. We certainly recognize the names and can kind of place that in our mind. What were they doing? What was their point or their purpose? Yeah, that was the, that was the big thing that's at least pointed out to us. King Solomon had a big house, you know, and it's going to keep growing up to seven, 700 concubines, 300 wives. And so each of them is responsible for a month to provide a daily portion to the king's house so that he can continue. And it's, it's an amazing amount. Um, talks about Solomon's power, his wealth, and his wisdom here at the, towards the end of chapter 4. Um, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. Philistines are on the Mediterranean. What river is he talking about here? Yeah, it's the Euphrates. This, I did look it up. The, the wording is almost always in the Old Testament used to refer to the Euphrates River, which is way further to the east than the Jordan. So he's, he's way across the desert, and that's how far his dominion goes. Those people that lived in that area paid him tribute, so kind of like uh, money to make sure you're on our side, so we'll make sure that you're, you're uh, for us, not for someone else. Um, verse 20, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life, verse 21. Verse 22, now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roe bucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings uh, this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So it talks about how much is there. And these are, we, we see it in 55-gallon drum sizes of stuff every day that the cooks had to make stuff for them. So it's just an enormous amount um, and probably maybe would grow at least later in life even. Um, let's see where I got to. Verse 26 Solomon had, this says, 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Um, now, his great possessions, a lot of versions, not versions, but the Chronicles account says 4,000 stalls. If you go to the Septuagint, which dates back to around 300 B.C., it's the oldest text we have of this particular thing. Well, the text may be 300 A.D. Uh, it's older than the, the Hebrew text that we have, but it says 4,000 as well. Makes more sense. 40,000 stalls for horses, just enormous, especially for 12,000 horses. Seems a bit overkill. 4,000 stalls for 12,000 horses, a little bit more believable. But uh, remember, I said sometimes there's a scribal error. Uh, you can imagine dipping your quill in ink and writing by candlelight sometimes. It's, it can get, get kind of dicey doing that, and especially if you, if you look at much Hebrew script. You can see how that would be a very difficult thing to keep up. They did a great, a great thing with that. Talks about Solomon's wisdom. It was just incredible. 
Uh, it says, verse 31, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, than Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. So it's, he's smart, he's unmatched. He also spoke of, uh, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He also spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals, of birds, creeping things, and fish. And all the nations, kings of the earth came to hear him. So he was unmatched in his wisdom. He was very erudite, just knowing a lot of stuff about everything and had an extreme renown. So next class, reading 1 Kings 5 through 7, and Brent will be teaching that one. Thank you for your attention and participation.